Our uh, gospel reading for this Easter morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. This is chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Let's listen together for the Word of God. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. They had been saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us? From the entrance to the tomb. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled back. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All that the women wanted to do was to grieve. This was the most important thing. Why else would they take the risk of being out in the city? Even on an average day, being a woman in the city could sometimes be unpleasant. They might pass some centurion saying they should smile more. <laughs> they might encounter a priest offering some tips on biblical womanhood. They might run into a thief who was ready to take more than a purse. But this was not an average day. Just days earlier, the empire had executed their friend Jesus, which sent the disciples into hiding and stopped their movement in its tracks. So now Mary, the other Mary, and Salome were walking the same streets as the religious leaders who betrayed Jesus. They were shopping in the same market as the soldiers who had tortured and killed him. There was so much danger that the men of the Jesus movement were too frightened to leave their safe house. And still the women decided to leave their homes under cover of darkness, to walk through the city, and to enter the grave where their friend was buried. Because they needed to grieve more than they needed to feel safe. At that moment, everything in their lives was chaos, but the rituals of grieving were predictable and comforting. Jesus was almost certainly not the first loved one that they had lost. Did you know that the average lifespan in the first century was probably just 35 years old? Disease, famine, and war took their toll. So these women had buried others, probably their parents, maybe even husbands and children, and they were seeking comfort in the familiar smells of the spices and the familiar sounds of the prayers. Archaeologists have uncovered tombs like the one that Jesus was in, and inside they found bowls and jars for spices and perfumes that loved ones left there to cover the smell of decomposition. So we have some idea of what the women were planning. 
Once the stone that blocked the grave entrance was removed, and in their hurry they seemed to have planned poorly for that part, they would have passed through the first chamber, ducked low under a second doorway, and entered a tiny chamber where the body of Jesus was beginning to smell. After anointing his head, they would have left the sweet-smelling stuff with his body as they left the tomb. But I don't think that was all that they planned to leave behind. They were going to bury more than the body of Jesus that day. They were going to bury their hopes for a better world. In just a few years of ministry and teaching and friendship, Jesus had given them the hope that a better world was possible. A world in which bodies were healed, relationships were restored, oppressors were overthrown, and religion was authentic and sincere. But when Jesus died, that vision for the kingdom of God on earth died with him. And the women needed to grieve this other loss too. They needed to mourn that other world. In order to carry on, they were resigning themselves to the world that they knew, the world with cancer and racism and chemical weapons and televangelists. For a few years, they had seen glimpses of the promised land, but now it was clear that they would never enter into it. So it was time to get comfortable again with what was familiar. And what better way to do that than to climb down into that tomb and look death right in the face. But if there is one thing that we could say about Jesus while he was alive, it's that he rarely let anyone settle for what was comfortable and familiar. He was always pushing the boundaries of what we thought was possible. And even in death, he did not disappoint. As soon as the women arrived, all their plans were thrown out the window. The stone was rolled away. Jesus was missing. And an angel was there with a message for them. Tell the boys, Jesus is going on ahead of you. Which, of course, he is. Jesus is always ahead of us, always calling us into a better future. But the women didn't seem to take much comfort from this. Whatever was happening here was far from familiar. In fact, it was completely outside the realm of human experience. It was literally incredible in the sense that no one was going to believe them. Not the priest, certainly not the centurion, probably not even their friends. Instead of comfort, they were experiencing terror and alienation. So the women who had been brave enough to risk this visit to the tomb fled and didn't tell anyone anything. And the last three words of this gospel are, they were afraid. Which, in my opinion, does not seem like a very promising conclusion to the story of Jesus. I mean, if the goal is to get people interested in following Jesus, maybe try ending with something like, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> just some constructive feedback for St. Mark, just some notes. But that's not what Mark gives us. They were afraid is how the earliest gospel ends. There was something so fragile and human and believable about that ending. 
But there's a mystery. How did we get from they were afraid to us, thousands of years later, still telling and remembering and singing songs about this story? What inspired those disciples to push past their fear and share their story? Well, I think one thing is that they did some good theology. They did some creative thinking. They reflected on their tradition and, they, and their recent experiences, and they realized that God was doing something new. As Jewish Christians, their faith was forged by the geographic location of Israel. They were stuck between warring superpowers, and they were subject to the injustices of imperial expansion and political oppression. But something that kept Israel going was the conviction that someday, or in the days to come, or at the end of days, God would eventually transform the violence of war into the justice of peace. And when God gave the prophets visions of this future, it was not just for Israel. It was a universal transformation. Everyone benefited, not just Israel. The prophet Micah said, God shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now the prophets all seem to think that this transformation was going to happen in a flash, in a moment, in a surprising act of God. And when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, the disciples remembered these visions from the prophets. They understood that Jesus was speaking the same language. And they were excited for a sudden transformation of society. They thought that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, God was about to act and to turn everything upside down. But we know what happened. Instead, the empire held on to its power and Jesus died. And for a few days, their hopes died with him. But then, the tomb was empty. And afterwards, they remembered stories of other holy men who had cheated death. In Genesis, we're told that Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him. In 2 Kings, we are told that Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. In Deuteronomy, Moses was buried after he died, but the location was a mystery. So some believe that he ascended too. These were ascensions, but what happens to Jesus in our story this morning is something different. It's not an ascension. It's one better. It's a resurrection. Enoch and Elijah did not have tombs. No one could find Moses' tomb. But Jesus had an empty tomb that you could go to which meant something new was happening. Not just an ascension, but a resurrection. And here's the thing about resurrection. In the thinking of that time, resurrection was universal. Ascensions were for individuals like Enoch and Elijah, but the resurrection was for everyone, just like the prophetic vision for peace. 
So when these early disciples looked at the death of Jesus through the lenses of resurrection and the prophetic visions of peace, they realized that the story did not end with the death of Jesus. In fact, it was just beginning. The transformation that they thought was going to happen in a flash was actually going to be a process. A process that begins with Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, and ends with new life for everyone. Now, in, uh, in Western Christianity, which is our tradition, the focus tends to be on the individual resurrection of Jesus. Um, you can see this reflected in the artwork um, of Western churches throughout history. Um, you've probably seen some. They tend to show Jesus climbing out of his grave or maybe hovering over the tomb. But in the Eastern Church, the theology of universal resurrection is represented instead. And in churches there, we find images like the one that's here on the screen. I was reading, a, uh, I was learning about this image recently uh, in a book called Resurrecting Easter. And uh, I liked it so much that I wanted to share it with you. So I hope you like it. Because <laughs> if you don't, too bad. This is what's happening. So this, is, uh, this one's from a church in the, uh, it was from the 14th century. Uh, I'm forgetting at the moment which country it's from, but it's in um, like the Middle East um, somewhere. And uh, this is representing a tradition that's over a thousand years old of representing the resurrection um, in this way. So it's got a lot of the familiar elements from images in the past. And it's one of the most beautiful um, images that's been done in this style. So um, a few things that you might be able to see, uh, maybe not from where you're sitting, maybe you can scope it out a little bit closer later. But obviously, like in the middle here, you guys know who that is, right? That's Jesus. And uh, he is like striding forcefully um, across the screen. His robes are billowing out from behind him. Uh, surrounding him is a, um, it's called a mandorla. It's a, it's a representation um, of his divinity, the stars um, around it. And then underneath it, you can see here and over here, those are the gates of hell that Jesus apparently busted open with his bare hands. And uh, underneath there, all through here, these are all bolts and locks and chains of all the people throughout history who have been um, imprisoned by death. And then right here, in between the gates, you can barely see it, that's Hades, uh, the personification of death, who Jesus has hogtied and left but alone in an empty, an empty hell. I think so too. So around them um, are some, um, some notable figures. So um, on the, uh, the left-hand side here, we've got um, King David with the beard and then young King Solomon without the beard. Um, over here is a bunch of dudes. No one knows who they are. Probably maybe some disciples or something. I'm not really sure. But then, um, so Jesus' immediate left and right are um, Adam and Eve. And Jesus is grabbing them by the wrists and dragging them forcefully out of their graves. <laughs> That's how resurrection feels? Yep. <laughs> that is some good theology. Some good theology. Um, 
And so you get this sense of the universal nature of the resurrection, right? Um, Paul says um, in, I think, the First Corinthians, um, that um, in one man, Adam, everyone died. Um, and through one man, Christ, everyone was made alive. And so you see that universal resurrection image in this picture. There's two other people that uh, I want to point out. Um, on the left here, this is John the Baptist. Um, and over here, this is Abel. Um, so you have the first martyr of Christianity, and you have the first murder victim of humanity um, in Abel. And so in addition to this universal resurrection image, you also have the sense of the injustices um, of human nature and society being righted um, through the resurrection itself, that um, the wrongs of the past are being made right. And there's one other thing um, about this image, and um, you can see sort of like some letters up there at the top. The, uh, the title for images in this style is called anastasis. Maybe it's pronounced anastasis, I don't know. But it's a word that can be translated uprising. And I love the theology of that. It's so rich because it captures both the upward motion um, of Jesus from the grave and dragging Adam and Eve with him um, by the wrists. But the word uprising also captures the political implications of the resurrection for human society. Um, that there is a movement of God through us to make the world a better place. So it's a beautiful image, but I think it's also good theology for us today. Because I think on many days, we are like the women on the way to the tomb. We are often in the business of resigning ourselves to business as usual, getting comfortable with the world of violence and injustice and insincere faith. But the good news about Easter morning is that the revolution, the movement, the uprising for a better world did not die with Jesus. It was only just the beginning. And Jesus is going on ahead of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. The, uh, the poet Seamus Haney wrote, History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up, and hope and history rhyme. God, as we are gathered here to celebrate the resurrection life, the uprising life, we ask that you would Keep us from settling for what is comfortable and familiar. Inspire us with the terrifying possibilities of newness. We ask you to open our eyes and our hearts to the suffering of others, and also to open our eyes to the hope of new life in that suffering. We ask that you would give us ears for the invitation of Jesus into your kingdom here on earth. That when we listen to it, when we accept it, when we participate in it, when we collaborate with you in it, 
when we enter into that kingdom, it becomes real and present here on earth. So God, we ask these blessings from you as we prepare our hearts to share together in communion.